So we're doing a, a sermon series on the book of 1 Corinthians. We are getting down the last few weeks. Uh, we're going to be taking a look this week on a, uh, a relatively controversial small portion of 1 Corinthians 14. Uh, the book of 1 Corinthians is a letter that the Apostle Paul writes to a church in the city of Corinth, which is this crazy, wide-open, licentious, anything-goes, prosperous, intellectually uh, smart sort of city. So it's a lot like our cities. Uh, and it's a letter uh, to, to a, a youngish church primarily about how to live out their faith on a practical level in a day-to-day uh, sort of way. So it's just chock full of practical advice, advice in particular uh, advice about uh, how to think about uh, uh, freedom and sin in, in a church, uh, about how to minister together in a church, about how to organize yourself as a family of faith, honoring the gifts that are in each of us. That's what he's been talking about for the last few chapters. As you know, if you have been uh, following along, it's a book not only about walking out faith in a practical way, it's about walking out faith in a practical way together. There's a lot in the book about how the family of faith comes together to honor Jesus and to pursue our mission in the world, right? And final along so far, speaking of togetherness, uh, there are some statements uh, in the book uh, that spark controversy because they are about men and women together. They are specifically about gender roles, which is something that we all love to talk about. Am I right? Am I right? Gender roles? Fantastic. There is nothing that inspires more worship and peace in a church than talking about gender roles. Gender roles always seem to be a little bit controversial, and they can, you know, talking about them can, can generate a, a little bit of pain uh, because uh, you know, gender is just one of those topics in society, inside or outside the church, uh, that is emotional. Uh, so an important thing to address uh, in, in some certain ways, uh, depending on how we speak about gender roles, the togetherness in our church could be split, oh, I don't know, maybe 50-50, more or less. Uh, a pretty big thing that affects pretty much everybody uh, in the church. Some people, as, as you may know, perhaps you have experience, some people dismiss the entire Jesus faith because they have included, concluded that Christianity and the Bible is anti-woman, right? Some people just dismiss the old, whole thing out of hand because they have heard, or it seems to them, uh, that the way the Bible talks about general roles is dismissive of, of women. But could that, could that possibly be true? Does that seem true to you? Knowing what you might know about Jesus and about the Gospels, anti-woman? Anti-anyone? No. Probably not. Uh, the most freeing document in, in world history. And, and I think just a casual read of the Bible, provided that you take it at face value and take it as a whole, uh, suggests the striking freedom that God wants for everyone in any social position, uh, no matter. Um, throughout the Gospels, the four primary books of the story of Jesus, uh, I, think, I think women, frankly, get a disproportionate amount of the honor. When, when there's a hero in a biblical story, usually a woman. And if it's not a woman, it's a foreigner. It's, it's someone who is outside of, of the Jewish faith, right? Those of you who are students uh, of, of the Gospels, 
Uh, Matthew 15, uh, Jesus is trying to get a break. Uh, he goes into foreign territory. Uh, and, uh, and a Syrophoenician, a Canaanite woman, a foreign woman, approaches him and says, uh, you know, heal, heal my daughter. And they have this little repartee. Finally, Jesus heals the daughter and says, woman, uh, I have not found such great faith anywhere. You are truly a hero of faith. Says that to a woman and uh, a foreigner. Uh, Matthew 27, uh, who are the people brave enough to stick with Jesus at the cross? Women. Uh, all his guy followers, with perhaps the exception of young John, who was just a kid, ran away uh, when, when things looked grim. Uh, the women stuck with him. Women, give a cheer. Who were the people that Jesus revealed himself first when he was resurrected? Women, the Marys. And then the women, the first ones to receive the testimony, ran to the men and told them the story of Jesus' resurrection. What did the men do? Disbelieve them. Why? Because they failed to honor the women that Jesus went out of his way to honor specifically. Jesus was always just confronting gender roles with an idea toward liberty uh, and freedom. Uh, Mark chapter 5, a woman who had been hemorrhaging uh, for 12 years sneaks up behind Jesus and touches the hem of his garment and gets miraculously healed. Right? She was not supposed to be out in public because she was bleeding. She was not, as a woman, supposed to touch a holy rabbi. She does everything inappropriately. And what does Jesus do? Tell the whole story to everyone because you have tremendous faith. It was the woman of ill repute that came in and, and, and broke the alabaster jar and anointed Jesus for his burial when all of his guy disciples were in denial about it. And Jesus said to her, the only time he ever said anything like this, wherever the gospel is preached, the story of this woman will be told. It's always, it's always, it's always the woman. Uh, Luke 8, we get uh, the list of Jesus' primary male disciples, but in that list is included uh, a number of women that were following along as well. They were not commissioned as apostles, presumably because to send them out on their own into villages and foreign lands would have been a threat to them. But uh, as near as we can tell, about half of Jesus' regular followers during his days were women. And the scripture tells us that the people that supported him financially were primarily women. He was supported by women, which in that day and age would have been quite scandalous. Um, but Jesus uh, was all about it. And so, too, it continues into the epistles. Paul says famous, famously in Galatians chapter 3, In Christ we are all children of God, so there is neither slave nor free, neither Jew nor Gentile, neither man nor woman, male or female. Everybody is equal, in other words, no matter where you come from. In Christ, everybody is an equal child. There are other examples. I could go on and on and on, but you read the document, and it's like, dang. You know, women are all that. So, snaps to the ladies. In the, uh, in the ministry of, of the Apostle Paul, he went out into the world trained as a conservative Jew, but a lot of the people that were heroic in his ministry were, in fact, women. Um, he raised up he probably has two most famous disciples, one of them being Timothy and the other one being Priscilla, who was a married woman and married to a guy named Achilla. 
in the list, her name is typically listed first. You know, it, it would be as if <clears throat> Sonia and I were introduced as Mr. and Mrs. Sonia Sang. You know, but in, in the ancient, yeah, you'd, you'd be up for that, it'd be okay. But in the ancient uh, Greek world, that would have been even more shocking. But she was so honored and respected as an apostle and as a leader in the Christian movement that she was given top billing, however she was. Um, striking. Uh, Lydia was the, sort of the first uh, house church host uh, in Europe that, that Paul meets, sort of built a church upon her hospitality and her social uh, assertiveness. Right. We, we, could go, we could go on and, and on. There are plenty of historical indications that the early church was a place of refuge from the widespread uh, misogyny of the day. I mean, women were not treated very well in ancient times, right? Uh, but, the, but the church became a place, uh, by most accounts, where women could go and be treated with great respect and a shocking degree of equality. Um, in much the same way, the church was a leveler in other socioeconomic respects. It was the first truly transracial movement uh, in the world. Um, it was trans-class. People came from all different economic classes. Um, everywhere you look in the New Testament, women are getting elevated, not diminished. Everywhere, everywhere you look. And it has been said by many that Christianity was really the world's first women's lib movement. Uh, so much so that some of the early Christian teachers every once in a while had to say, hey, you know, this isn't primarily what we're about. We are primar primarily about gathering people in into Christ, not totally redefining social roles, which is why Paul, uh, from time to time in the epistles, has to address the issue of slavery. Look, if you're a slave, just, you know, be a slave if that helps you minister. You know, it's really not about redefining social roles. It's about restoring people into relationship with God. But the effect of that was liberating for so many people in so many oppressive situations. And that fits, does it not? Does all of that not fit with what you understand about Jesus and God, with the message of love, the message of grace, the message of freedom that you get from the Gospels? It fits, right? It seems appropriate. Uh, it, it seems right. But there are a few places, and really just a few, uh, in Scripture in the New Testament that would seem uh, at first blush to, uh, to be rather oppressive and very constrictive of women's roles uh, in the church and particularly in, in ministry. Uh, when I was in college, I was, uh, I was really trying to get the hang of, of evangelism. I kind of became known in my social circles as a guy who would be willing to talk about God, if nothing else. And, and one, one, uh, one day I got... Uh, a knock on the door and a friend of mine said, Jordan, I really need you to meet a friend of mine who uh, has just walked away from the faith and rejected the church. Uh, and he has done it because he doesn't like the way that the church treats women. And the friend who was saying this to me was a woman. Uh, she had tried to convince him that Jesus was cool, uh, failed. So she said, you know, Jordan, why don't you come? Uh, you talk about scripture well. So I, so I met the guy and it was a terrible conversation. It probably lasted about 12 minutes in its entirety. And all he did was quote verses at me, including the verses uh, that we're going to read today out of 1 Corinthians 14. And he said, look, you know, the Bible says that women are inferior. I cannot abide by that. So I am rejecting the entire thing. I'm walking away from God. I'm going to 
do what I want, you're just full of blank. Um, and, and I didn't even get a chance to convince him otherwise, but it provoked in me this sort of remembrance of experiences that I had, you know, reading through the scripture when I was young. And I would come to these passages that said, all oh, women are not allowed to speak in church. And I had reactions like, one, that seems strange and out of nowhere, given everything else that the scripture and the gospel story says about women. Two, I don't know of anyone that abides by that. I've never been to a church where women had to keep their heads covered and weren't allowed to talk and had to look down when I walked by and all of that nonsense. What's, what's up there? Everybody seems to be ignoring this, so I will ignore it too, was sort of my, my first reaction to it. But then I encountered people that were literally walking away from God because of these few verses. So I just resolved to myself, I got I to gotta figure this out. There's got to be a better way to talk about this stuff than just to kind of dismiss it uh, out of hand. And uh, it led me to, uh, you know, an investigation of the whole Bible, the document as a whole, which is the best way uh, to take uh, the Bible and to understand how to understand uh, what the Bible says and, and what it doesn't say, um, what we should grasp in it and, and what we should not. I think the Bible is a, is a matchless document. And I don't think there'd be any, any scholar in the world who would disagree with me. Uh, it has a rock-solid pedigree and a provenance. We know about its origins. Uh, as ancient documents go, it is the most authenticated by many orders of magnitude. Uh, no other document from ancient history comes close. Uh, it is a solid document when it comes to history. Uh, uh, many times in, in, you know, over, over the last few centuries, historians have argued against the accuracy of the Bible only to find that, in fact, the Bible was right all along. Archaeology has confirmed uh, a lot of, of what it said. It has a great deal of textual integrity, meaning that the text that we have today that we call the Bible is pretty dang close to the texts that were written uh, originally. Um, there have been lots of famous controversy o over this, and, and the Bible has pretty much always come out smelling like roses. The most fam famous example has to do with something called the Dead Sea Scrolls. You guys heard of those? The Dead Sea Scrolls uh, was a, a discovery made by a little shepherd boy in some caves in Qumran, sort of in like modern day uh, Jordan out in the desert areas, um, accidentally discovered a bunch of clay vases hidden in a cave. Um, some from circa like 100 and, uh, well, he found them in 1947 and found a bunch of manuscripts that were dated both to like 150 to 75 BC. So like, you know, century or so before Jesus lived. And the Dead Sea Scrolls were basically full copies of the Old Testament. Um, and why was this significant? It's because these things dated from you know, like the century before Christ, but they confirmed pretty much to the word that the other sources we had from the, from the Old Testament, which dates back a good 1,500 years before Christ, were indeed kept accurately. People had argued that the Old Testament had drifted, that the texts had changed, but the Dead Sea Scrolls confirmed that, no, throughout history, actually, they hadn't drifted in some cases by so much as a single word. People have been very diligent and deliberate in recording the scriptures uh, accurately. The New Testament has been preserved in more manuscripts than any other ancient work. 
Um, we have over 5,800 complete or fragmented Greek manuscripts of the Old Testament. In contrast, we have uh, fewer than a dozen uh, sources for the Homeric epics in Greek that we all study late in high school or in college. So, you know, thousands of times more authenticated uh, than other historic documents. We have 10,000 Latin manuscripts, 9,300 manuscripts in other ancient languages like Syriac, Slavic, Gothic, Ethiopic, Coptic, and Armenian, just so you know. Um, the oldest fragments we have in the New Testament date to about 117 AD, which is rather soon. Some, some of the guys you read about in scripture were still ministering at that time. So pretty much have, uh, you know, not the originals. We have some of the very first Xerox copies uh, of the letters and the gospels uh, as written, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I, I, I could go on, but a great matchless authenticated historical document. The only thing is the document doesn't seem quite perfect. There are small imperfections in it. Uh, we have a collection of manuscripts, all of them quite ancient, and they don't agree perfectly. Uh, uh, some manuscripts of the Gospel of John include John chapter 8, the story of the woman caught in adultery. Some of the manuscripts don't. So does that mean that we should throw out the Gospel of John? Actually, parenthetically, Apparently what it means, according to scholarly research, is that the story of the woman caught in adultery originally appeared in the Gospel of Matthew, but religious people found it so offensive that Jesus should apparently let a woman caught in adultery off the hook that they edited it from the Gospel. The Gospel of John was written later, and so church leaders who by then had learned better about grace reinserted it uh, so that it would be a story in circulation, which is kind of a, an exception that proves the rule sort of story. Uh, I think the message of grace needs to be honored. Um, so there's that. Uh, in 1 Kings chapter 4, we read, And Solomon had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots and 12,000 horsemen. But in 2 Chronicles 9.25, we read, And Solomon had 4,000 stalls for horses and chariots and 12,000 horsemen. So w one says he had 40,000 and the other 4,000. That's terrible. That should keep you up at night. That should compromise your worship. Somebody forgot to carry the zero. Um, it's really not a problem, these sorts of imperfections, unless, unless you think that the Bible was strictly dictated by God. And there's some that hold this position, right? That the Bible is a document dictated by the living God to humans who copied it down word for word. And if your concept of biblical inerrancy is like that, I mean, it's really word-for-word -word dictation, uh, then these sorts of things drive you bonkers. Uh, if you say that the Bible is an entirely divine document, it doesn't have any human filtering or human error in it, then you have a problem, you know? And, and, I, and a lot of people get hung up on this. No, it is what it is. Uh, manuscripts disagree. No, that's not true. Uh, we can reconcile everything. So kind of depends about how strict you want to be about that. There are, I would say, three general ways to understand the Bible. The first one I just said, it's like dictated word for word by God, in which, in which case these small errors and inconsistencies seem very dire. They are big trouble uh, for you. Uh, the other way to think about it, 
generally, I'm being very general and vague here, is that it's a human document written by godly people who had very real interactions with a very real God. So they had interactions with God and then they wrote stuff down uh, as best they could under his inspiration, but not exactly his dictation. Uh, so it's a human document. And, and this is, this is the, the position that I hold because it, it makes the Bible really, really convincing to me. If the Bible is a human document, then it is divine. What I mean by that is if you say that humans wrote it, then there must be a God. Because the Bible was written over a good 1,500 years across dozens of cultures, across dozens of, of geographic locations in the world, and it hangs together perfectly. The story from the original problem in the, in, in the book of Genesis where <clears throat> mankind believed in God but did not trust his character to the answer to that problem in the crucifixion of Christ. Uh, this is a God who's not interested in lording over anyone. Look at his character, entirely loving, entirely gracious. The story is just so incredibly consistent. It could not possibly have been faked or strung together by humans across 1,500 years, different cultures, different languages, different places, but the story does hold together magnificently. I've preached entire sermons about that. You can go look them up online, but if the Bible is human, then it's divine. You understand what I'm saying there? Uh, it, is, it, is just, it is just marvelous. I think that's one of the main arguments for the existence of God. Uh, when, when I talk to atheists, I, I often use it. And then the third, third way to hold it is that the Bible is entirely a conspiracy. It's all been faked by people late in, in history, but, you know, false according to what I just said about worldview too. Nobody could have faked this. Nobody could have faked it all hanging together so consistently well, particularly not a bunch of illiterate Galilean fishermen. You know, nobody could have pulled that off. Anyway, that all, believe it or not, is just backdrop to today's passage, which Jody was kind enough to bring to me. Uh, we find uh, in First Corinthians, uh, from First Corinthians 14. Uh, I'm just going to read verses 32 uh, through 39, uh, which is an excerpt from the larger chapter 14 that we read last week. Uh, Paul, uh, as you may recall, is talking primarily about prophecy and tongues in church and and how you use them relatively. And and toward the end of the chapter, he's really you know, he's encouraging people to hear from the Lord, to minister in the gift of prophecy. He says the spirit of prophets are subject to the control of prophets. In other words, you know, everybody can stay on top of their own game and work together. For God is not a disorder, God of disorder, but of peace, as in all the congregations of the Lord's people. Women should remain silent in churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Or did the word of God originate with you? Or are you the only people it has reached? If anyone thinks they are a prophet or otherwise gifted by the Spirit, let them acknowledge that what I am writing to you is the Lord's command. But if anyone ignores this, they will themselves be ignored. Therefore, brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues. That's the way it's written. What do you notice about that? It makes no sense. It says a woman speaking up in church. There you go. That's what I'm talking about. Uh, there's something funny about it. It's, it strikes you kind of funny, I think, uh, for, for a number of reasons. And this has been a very controversial passage in Scripture. 
one of those at our meeting as a kid and being puzzled, if we took it seriously and we took it sort of as written, we would have some serious uh, issues here. Women would be excluded from, from ministry. Uh, we, we would have to deal with certain contradictions in this book uh, because uh, chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians, you may or may not recall, uh, contains instructions about how women should go about speaking in church, praying and prophesying in particular. Uh, and so it has con contradictions to other things written in the very same letter, ostensibly by the very same guy. Uh, and, you know, if, if you want to just say, well, you have to understand this in cultural context, then you sort of get sucked into a cultural vortex. You know, if culture filters, like, well, women are not allowed to speak in churches in, in Corinth, you know, appropriate to their situation. Well, that leads you down a slippery slope of trying to understand what parts of the Bible vary uh, by, by Scripture. So it's, it's very problematic. And other people have struggled with this passage a lot um, for various reasons. Uh, this, this passage, these verses, appear in every existing copy of, of the letter of 1 Corinthians that we have uh, in the archives. However, they appear in different places. Uh, sometimes they appear here uh, after verse uh, 29. Other times they appear at the very end of the chapter as if they're sort of tacked on. And that has led scholars to make lots of interesting arguments and presumptions. A lot of people say, well, it just shows that it doesn't belong there. Our one theory is that it was actually scribbled in the margins of uh, an early copy of the letter of 1 Corinthians, and so scribes, not knowing what to do with a margin note, just shoved it into the text wherever they felt like it, wherever it seemed uh, to fit with them. Uh, but it's hard to make it fit anywhere, and if it was a margin note, who wrote it? You know, did Paul write something in the margins of his own letter and then circulate it? That seems odd. Scholars don't know what to do with that. Maybe they should treat it like uh, most uh, modern translations of the Bible treat John chapter 8, the story of the woman caught in adultery. Most translations will include the story, but with a footnote that says this does not appear in some of the oldest manuscripts so that the reader gets to decide for himself or for herself. Uh, some of the early editors of the Bible, like Bishop Victor of Capua in AD 546. You guys remember him? Vic, we call him Vic. Um, he had access to earlier manuscripts of the book of 1 Corinthians. Well, he commanded um, a rewriting of 1 Corinthians 14, uh, these verses, 33 through 35 in particular. Uh, he, excuse me, he commanded a rewriting of 1 Corinthians 14 that had those verses edited out because in his opinion, according to the manuscripts he had access to, they were not legitimate. Uh, many scholars today argue against including it in the Bible at all. Anyway, controversy. How do you handle that? And I just want to make a, a few uh, comments about how to go about handling that and then a few comments about women in church. Um, are you still with me? After all of those arcane details, you know, <clears throat> this isn't so much a sermon from Scripture as it seems a sermon about Scripture, doesn't it? Sorry about that. But let me just plow through, through a few observations, what I think about it and how it all fits for me as someone who just loves Scripture and has shaped his entire life according to this book. Um, I think 
Paul did not write these verses. And I feel fine uh, about them being there. Uh, but I would uh, like to understand them in, in the proper light. Here are five or six reasons I don't think Paul wrote these verses. Uh, number one, they don't really fit in the context of the chapter. He's talking about prophecy. And just notice the way that it flows, right? Uh, the spirit of prophet, of Prophets are subject to the control of prophets. Women should remain silent in churches. Where did that come from? Right? We are not talking about the role of women in churches. We are not talking about generals. What are we talking about? This is an essay on prophecy and how to use spiritual gifts in church. In fact, Paul has been talking about spiritual uh, gifts for, for basically three chapters now. And all of a sudden, and women need to shut up when they get into church. And then he says all of this, women should remain silent, submission to their own husbands. Uh, don't you question me on this, or you will be you know, excluded, you'll be ignored in church. Therefore, my brothers, be eager to, brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy. Then he kind of goes back to prophecy. You could take out verses 32 through 35, and it would read much better. Um, the spirit of prophets are subject to the control of prophets, for God is not a God of disorder, but of peace, as in all the congregations of the Lord's people. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, which is the proper summa, summation statement to the chapter. Does not appear, in, in, does not follow the flow of, of the verse. There are some other strange things about it. Evidently, the person who wrote this knew that it would be controversial. Because, you know, he, I assume it was a he, doesn't, doesn't just say women need to be quiet in churches. He says uh, they must be in submission as the law says. Um, it is disgraceful for women to speak in church. Or did the word of God originate with you? Remember, he's, he's talking to Gentiles here. And the word of God, you know, originated with, with the Jews. So it's like... I know this is going to be controversial, but shut up, obey the law, uh, the Jews know better. Do you know anything about Paul? Anything about his ministry to the Gentiles? You know, about dividing, uh, conquering the dividing wall of hostility between Jews and Gentiles? Would Paul ever say this? Would he ever talk about the law in this way? You know, he was the guy that spent huge portions of other letters talking about why we are free from the law as believers uh, under Christ. You know, would he, would he lecture Gentiles on being improperly, you know, not, not Jewish enough? Would Paul do that? This is the guy that, that commanded Gentiles not to get circumcised, no matter what the Jewish law said about that custom. So it's just bizarre uh, that, that Paul would, would talk uh, this way. Um, it contradicts, this passage contradicts other things that were said about women praying and prophesying in church in chapter 11. Uh, so that's a problem. Uh, that's another one. Uh, it contradicts the way that Paul worked with um, female ministers uh, in, in the rest uh, of his ministry. Uh, and, and it and it pretty much violates the point of the previous three chapters, which has been essentially this. Everybody has spiritual gifts from the Lord. Everybody has ministry gifts. And each person must use their gifts together. We must figure out how to get everybody to use their gifts together. Oh, except for women. 
women are not allowed to speak. They can only, you know, talk to their husbands at home. Does that make any sense? It makes no sense. So I'm all about excluding these verses. Now, depending on where you come from, I have just branded myself a heretic, or I have proven myself a lover of Scripture. I'm going to go with number two. Uh, the reason I want to kick these verses out of our consideration of the message of 1 Corinthians is because I love the message of 1 Corinthians so much. It is so compelling because I have dedicated my life to understanding the message and the truth and the story contained in Scripture. So when I come up, when I come to something in Scripture that is such a blatant denial of that story, I cry foul. I think, hmm. I wonder. I wonder if something funny is going on here because this is not consistent at all. And then I start investigating a little bit. That's what I first did in college after having this disturbing conversation with this fellow. I actually investigated. But it's not something I think he did. And I found all sorts of scholarship about these verses uh, by, by people who love scripture and actually wanted to think about it. Another thing that you find is that these uh, verses, 32 through 35, are written in a slightly different version of Greek than the rest of the letter, as if they were penned by someone else at a later time. Hmm, things that make you go, hmm, Arsenio Hall, anyone? Children of the 80s, 90s, anyone? Arsenio Hall, not an authority on the authenticity of scripture, by the way, just for the record. Um, so what do we do with the Bible then? If, if it's possible to find these error verses in Scripture, then how do we think about it? Who am I to interpret what belongs in Scripture and what does not belong in Scripture? Right? Somebody shake your fist at me. That's right. Who am I to be all authoritative uh, about these things? And my response is, I am no one. I don't think any individual should interpret what belongs in the scripture and what doesn't. You know who I think gets to decide what's included in the Bible? I think the Bible gets to decide what's included in the Bible. And the best way to interpret any troublesome piece of scripture that you come across is to interpret it in the context of the wider book. Because it is a matchless story that has been written across thousands of years. It hangs together beautifully. We have the right to assume consistency. And when you come across a landmine like this, the best way to interpret it is to just appeal to the rest of the book. You know, Even if you were just to appeal to the rest of the Apostle Paul's writing, I think you'd fix the problem easily enough. You just have to respect the Bible enough to let the Bible interpret the Bible for you. Are you following me? It doesn't fit. It clearly doesn't fit. Churches know it doesn't fit, which is why they do not follow it. It just seems a little more courageous to say, oh yeah, it doesn't fit, I'm going to throw it out. No, no, you can't do that because, you know, then you're saying that the Bible is inerrant. No, I actually think the Bible is a little bit more perfect by having these small errors in it. You know why? It proves that nobody was faking the document. Because if this were a cabal... If the Bible were the product of a committee wanting to fool the world, they would remove little things like this. Uh, you know, when cops gather witnesses to crimes together, maybe they have 12 witnesses of a crime and they interview them all. What if every witness tells the story detail for detail, word for word the same? What would you, a cop, conclude? It's a conspiracy. 
But there is no way that the Bible is a conspiracy. These are one of the little things that tell us that and also help us to understand about all the battles during that age. You know, who was this written by? It was written by, obviously, a, a Jewish Christian who was insisting that the law be followed according to Jewish custom, not even according to Jewish law, because the law doesn't say that women have to be silent in churches. Um, it was just a Jewish custom that somebody was insisting on. These were the same guys that followed Paul around wherever he went, insisting that all Christians uh, follow all of the Old Testament laws and that they all get circumcised and stuff like that. Paul was so frustrated by them at one point that uh, he says to uh, some of his readers, I wish they would go emasculate themselves. I wish they would go cut it off. You know, if they're so into circumcision, let them cut it all off. That's what he said. That was Paul. I like Paul. You like Paul? He's my kind of guy. You can have a beer with Paul, you know? Uh, there aren't that many of these errors in Scripture, though, and, and most of them are minor and obvious. Uh, the major points, I think, are, are, are really clear. Only a handful of these problem passages, which is just astonishing, given, again, the way the Bible has come to us and, and how it, it was written. Um, you know, people talk about, you know, the, the Gnostic Gospels, these other Gospels that are out there and how maybe we should consider them part of the canon. But all the early Christian leaders uh, chose against those Gospels. Why? Have you read them? Have you ever read a Gnostic Gospel? They're stupid. Most of them are polemical. They're written about certain issues, about certain th- I mean, it's obvious that they don't belong. Let the Bible interpret the Bible. It's not, a, it's not hard. It's not a, a big deal. Uh, there's a lot of reinterpretation of scripture these days around the issue of homosexuality. Um, I'm not going to talk about that today, but the interesting thing about scripture and homosexuality is that homosexuality gets mentioned at least 11 different times in scripture from the New Testament all the way back to the Old Testament. At least six or seven of those are directed directly at the issue, and they all say pretty much the same thing. And so there's a consistency, right? the Bible reaffirms itself. Uh, So you have to deal with it as a whole, take it as a whole, and then let the document inform your life and your thinking and try to figure out the whys and the wherefores behind uh, the issue. You know, not particularly complicated. Challenging, but not particularly complicated. Anyway, what's the takeaway point from all of this today? I need to wrap up now that I've given you a history lesson in Bishop Victor of Capua. Um, What does that mean for how we understand 1 Corinthians 14 in this letter and living out practically our faith? Uh, Well, the first thing I would say about this piece of scripture and scripture in general is that you have to learn to trust the message. Not just a given verse torn out of context, but the message. Know the story. You know, don't just be able to quote verses, be able to tell the story of God and humanity. You have to get the big picture in your head. Know what the message is about. The message is about love. The message is about grace. The message is about restoration. It's about the kingdom now. It's about a God who would die for you rather than raise a big stink about stuff. Uh, it's, it's an amazing, surprising uh, story. You know, hear the whole message, do not take things out of context, and do not edit scripture to suit yourself or grab on to certain disturbing verses and try to turn them into something that, they not, that they're not. You know, trust the message and do it humbly. 
Uh, if you're going to be a person of the word, I think you have to be a person of God, which is to say there's no substitute with interacting with the Lord directly over scripture and letting him guide you, which is what I decided to do with these controversial scripture verses when I saw people getting mad and walking away from the faith on account of them. I went to the Lord and said, Lord, we got to figure this out. You're pretty smart. Um, what do you have to say? Uh, if there are bits in the Bible that bother you, what are you going to do about it? A, pretend they're not there and behave however you want. That's what a lot of people do about these disturbing verses of the role of women. Yeah, I'm just not going to think about that too hard, and we'll conduct church any way we want anyway. Um, you know, that's, that's one option. Uh, B, get mad and leave. That's another option. Or C, listen to the message of Scripture, to what the Lord might say about it to you. Really listen thoroughly and deeply. I would suggest C. Uh, more to the point, how about some anxiety-free scriptural understanding of gender roles in church? How about that? How about we actually take on the subject uh, without a lot of anxiety, a lot of hang-ups, and just sort of frankly, open-mindedly. Turns out, I think that the church is a place where women are to be honored equally with men, which is what we have known all along, those of us who read the Gospels and read the epistles. Right? Is there any indication that women should be inferior citizens in the kingdom of God? On the contrary, they get all the good press. Uh, it's their faith and their virtue, their character uh, that gets honored. And, and I don't think there's anything in scripture, certainly not in the book of 1 Corinthians, that should dissuade us from that. Turns out that men and women are supposed to be partnered together in church. Shake the hand of somebody next to you that is not of your gender. Welcome aboard. Um, turns out that they are to be partnered in ministry. They are to be partnered uh, together in marriage in a loving and mutually respectful way, which is what we've suspected. Have we not? Um, these strange verses notwithstanding. And, and appreciate the message of 1 Corinthians, particularly the latter bits of it. All people have ministry gifts from God. All those gifts must be honored and included. This document was a revolution in its day about including people and everyone working together. Who gets to minister in the church? Everyone. I mean, that was a tremendous revolution in its day. Doesn't matter, male, female, Jew, Gentile, rich, poor, black, white, brown, Everybody has wealth and treasure and ministry gifts and purpose from the Lord and the church of God, the family of faith, must figure out how to make them all work together. That's really going to change the way that people interact in society. It's no wonder that people thought that the early church was a women's live movement or, you know, an, uh, an abolition movement, uh, a radical brotherhood of men and women movement. You know, this is like, wow, they do things differently. Yes, we do. Yes, we do. And society in some ways has caught up with the church. Uh, let's just be the church that we're called to be. Amen? Uh, by honoring the wealth, the gifts, the purposes that God has placed in each of us. You are a child of God. 
respect. I don't care who you are. God has something going on with you. You have a purpose and some ministry gifts, and it's my job to figure out what that stuff is and, and, to, and to use it and to see that you use it. And that really influences the way that I meet people and the way that I interact with them. I'm, I'm going to meet some of you for the first time today. I promise you that one of the first things I will be thinking is, what has God put in this one? What purposes and plans does the Lord have for this one? And all of my spiritual senses will be opening. I'll be trying to figure you out as a child and a minister in God. And one of the things that does for me is it gets me right past all of the other social barriers. You know, if you walk up to me today and you are a smoking hot chick, like this one, and this one over here, um, maybe I'll notice it. Uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm only human, but, but almost immediately, right, my mind goes to a different place. What has the Lord put in this one? I'm conditioned to think of you in a deeper way. That's really, really helpful, right? I think that helps me interact with you as a human being rather than, you know, an apparition of, you know, attractiveness. However, you know, it doesn't matter how you're dressed, you're always, you're always thinking about the deeper purposes of the Lord in somebody. And I would love for our church to be characterized by that and actually take 1 Corinthians seriously on that score. I'm going to pray in just a minute. Uh, as a church, I think generally we do this well. Uh, but some of you may have experiences uh, in life where it has not gone so well, where people have really oppressed you uh, because you're a, a woman or because you look different or uh, seem uh, socially inappropriate or something like that. In the church of God, it should not happen, but sometimes it does. And I wonder if there are people here who have been wounded by it and therefore in some ways are stuck on it because that's what happens sometimes. We get mistreated and then we get scared or we get bitter. And when that happens, you get stuck. You no longer minister as freely as you should. You don't follow the purposes of the Lord in your life as you should. And I just wonder if there are people here like that. You know, it's just, I want to just pause for reflection here at the end of the service. Are you, are you injured in such a way that you're stuck? Maybe people have treated you with disrespect, but it doesn't bug you, and that's great. You've moved on. You've gotten over it. But maybe you feel pegged. Maybe you feel a little bit intimidated or angered and it is shaping your life and your purpose in a bad way. The epistles say there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Everybody here is equal. Everybody here has a place. Everybody here has a job to do. And I don't want anything to get in the way. Let's pray. All right, Lord, we may or may not be healthy in this regard, but certainly 
the whole world is not entirely healthy. Certainly not all of the church is healthy. I pray, Lord, that you would free us from a number of things this morning. I pray that you would free us from uh, false religion uh, that, that mistreats Scripture, that disrespects it, either by being too loose with it or uh, too narrow-minded with it. We are people of grace, and in the name of Jesus, brothers and sisters, I free you by the word of grace that Jesus preached. And Lord, together uh, in Jesus' name, we just want to forgive anyone who has mistreated us in the past, uh, according to our gender or our race or the way that we appear. We let them go. I encourage you just to let them go. Forgive them in Jesus' name in your heart. This is all very quick, but in the name of Jesus, I just want to affirm you as a gifted minister having purpose in the kingdom of God. Uh, you have a place here, and nothing will get in the way. Uh, you are invited as a full heir of faith, a full member of this family, indeed as a full member of the family of Christ. You've got work to do. You've got challenges to overcome. And we need not waste time on these false ones. And it is my selfish prayer, Heavenly Father, that you would raise up Blue Water Mission as a community that is rich with liberty, rich, rich with freedom, and that the world could look at us and see uh, the beautiful diversity of creation and giftedness in, in your creation. And just behold people that love each other without any reservation, that encourage one another without any constriction, and that rely on each other without any doubts. We are one in you. We are one in you. And if you're with me in that, say, with great vigor, amen.